Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Catherine Mayer. Catherine's a best-selling author, journalist and activist. She's the co-founder and president of the Women's Equality Party and co-founder of Prima Donna, a festival that celebrates brilliant writing, music, and ideas giving prominence to women. Her most recent book, the memoir, Good Grief, Embracing Life at a Time of Death, contains letters written by her mother after both women were widowed at the start of the pandemic. Catherine Mayer, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Thank you. How are you today? <laughs> it's funny that you asked that question because um, it's a it's a question that I've actually pushed back against a little bit since losing my husband because I think it's a difficult question for people who are bereaved, particularly the recently bereaved, because often we're struggling for some kind of grasp on something that feels normal or not intense or whatever and the question kind of tends to either demand an answer that is meaningless or it turns you in on yourself to explore that how you're really feeling Um, and I guess given that I've agreed to talk to you today I'm I'm going to be prepared to do that Um, so I can either give you a long answer or a short answer I've already given you quite a long answer Um, I think I'm feeling okay today. I actually had a weekend that was a bit challenging in the sense that with things opening up um, now after the lockdown, I've been thrust into more social situations than I'd been before. And although it's lovely to have company, having company instantly reminds you that you're having company as a single person in my case, as a widow, um, for the really for the first time. So it's quite odd, too. So it was your husband who died, Catherine? Yes, uh, my husband, Andy, died right at the start of the pandemic. Can you tell us about that? Can you tell us about his death? So um, Andy was a, a musician. Um, his name was Andy Gill. He had co-founded a a band called Gang of Four and um, you know music was was his life Um, he was also a producer he toured with the band quite a lot Uh, and in um, September of 2019 in fact uh, the band toured to Greece it would have been our um, it coincided with with what was our 20th wedding anniversary and 29th year together And I managed to go with the band for that tour to be able to celebrate. And they then went off to the Far East and um, also Australia and New Zealand. 
And the last stop on that tour was China. And he came back in um, the very end of November 2019 and seemed very healthy indeed. But both of us were quite distracted because my stepfather went into hospital at the beginning of December and he got sicker and sicker and um, eventually died just before Christmas. And so a lot of my attention was on my mother and dealing with her bereavement, but also my own. I mean, my stepfather, John, had been my stepfather for 40 years, more than 40 years, and, and you know, was somebody very close as well. And so it wasn't really until Andy and I went away very briefly at New Year that I realised that what I thought was perhaps a cold was much more serious than that. And I realised that um, we were staying in this place in Italy that had a couple of staircases and he couldn't really even negotiate the staircases. And when we got back to the UK, uh, when we arrived in the airport, I realised he couldn't walk through the airport. So I got a, a wheelchair for him. And it may sound crazy that um, even though he was in that kind of, of poor condition, we didn't get him straight to hospital at that point. But he was very resistant to it. He resisted it because he had had um, some flare-ups with um, a, a condition that he already had, which meant that he had once before been hospitalised and they had done really nothing for him. And in fact, he felt he was in more danger of being made ill by being in hospital. But also because he was a musician and he was planning to do a lot of touring, he worried that if people heard about him being in hospital, that in some way that would um, stop people from booking him on, on further dates. And he also was um, in the throes of finalising an album and he, he was so passionate about it and he didn't want to be away from his studio. So he persuaded me to look after him at home. Uh, he did see a specialist and, and see his GP but it wasn't until the 18th of January that he went into hospital when I, I came home and saw him and I just said, I'm calling an ambulance for you. Uh, he was admitted to intensive care. Um, he had at that stage, he had very low oxygen saturation. He was diagnosed with sepsis and also then quite quickly with the strain of pneumonia. But the strain of pneumonia was one that should have been very treatable. The ICU team said he was the healthiest person in ICU so they expected not only that he would recover but that he would only be in that level of care for a day or so and instead what happened was um, every intervention they tried didn't work um, so he was kept in in there. During this period of time I was also organizing my stepfather's funeral and the only time I wasn't at Andy's side was when I attended my stepfather's funeral. And so at some point, the, um, the nursing staff were becoming concerned about me and they told me, look, you really have to go home and rest um, because this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. You need your strength to, to look after your husband. They were still expecting him to be discharged. And I went home to sleep and um, returned to the hospital early the next morning and as I was 
coming back to the hospital, they rang me from intensive care and they told me that he had gone into a sort of a crisis and that for his own comfort, they had put him into a coma and on a ventilator. And so I did not ever get the chance to say goodbye to him because the further interventions that they tried didn't work and his organs began to fail. And they called me in and um, asked me to agree a date to remove life support, which I did. And that date was the 1st of February. Throughout this period of time, um, the, they had asked briefly about him being in China and concluded because of what both the, the Chinese government was saying and the government over here was saying about the spread of COVID that it couldn't possibly be that because, you know, supposedly it hadn't got outside Wuhan before um, January and, you know, that it was only identified at the end of December and he hadn't been to Wuhan. So it was only very much later that I realized that that may be what had killed him and talked to the hospital about it and discovered that they were investigating that probability. Um, so it was something where certainly he shouldn't have died. He wasn't expected to die. He then died and I went through an initial process of trying to understand what had happened and then was confronted with a, pos with a new possibility, which I then had to work through. Um, and all of this, of course, going on at the same time as my mother had been recently bereaved and then lockdown came. Where I was very lucky was that I was able to be with Andy and that I was also able to hold a memorial for him, um, which is something that's been denied to so many people. And lockdown came just after his memorial. So much going on. I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to splurge. No, 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 no. Just... I'm thinking about you and um, I'm thinking a few things. One is I wanted to ask about conversations. So, um, you know, maybe conversations that you and Andy had about ill health or what, what might be happening at the time. And of course you don't know, um, but also what other conversations you were having with those around you. I've, I was wondering about your support network and of course your stepfather just died and you're supporting your mum and managing your own grief and supporting your husband and trying to do the best thing. I was struck by when um, you mentioned his understandable reluctance to go into hospital um but actually that day you came back and you were like I'm going to call an ambulance and I think you know that'll, that that will ring true with lots of people because of course we're all individuals aren't we and we all even though we might be in relationships we still make our own choices and decisions about what we want but actually if the other person wants something different, especially if you're seeing someone suffering in front of you, that can be really difficult. Yes. Um, I mean, I think one of the reasons I mentioned that long period of time between it being obvious that he was really ill and his admission to hospital is because I think um, one of the things that I have to 
I have to kind of come to terms with. I don't think come to terms with is the right phrase here, but I have to acknowledge is that the outcome may have been different if I had put my foot down sooner. The outcome may have been different if he and I had been able to discuss death and mortality more easily. He was very resistant to those discussions for years and years. It wasn't just, it wasn't just as it happened at the time when it mattered most, but for years he had, we talked about absolutely everything. We were very close. Um, there was almost no subject that was off bounds, but death was off bounds. He had a real problem with talking about it. And we certainly had enough opportunity to talk about it because in the years before he died, I lost both my stepsister and one of my very best friends just a couple of years before. And then another very, not family member, but, but um, my sister's closest friend who was really family. They all died just in the years before. And between us, Andy and I had before that lost so many people close to us. I think we'd lost a very unusual number for our age. You know, it, it, the older you get, obviously, the, the higher the chances are that you're going to lose a large number of people. But our worlds had already become increasingly crowded with what I call the lovely dead, the, the people who mean a lot to you, but whose memory, not just whose memory you want to preserve, but who are a presence in your life. Um, and so we talked about the dead a lot, but Andy was very, very resistant to talking about death. And, and not just death, but when I would ever try to talk to him about how we might possibly change our lifestyle or do things a little differently as we got older, he really, really hated the idea that this was a possibility. And he'd even get irritated at me if I um, looked in a mirror and said, God, I'm looking old or something. Um, he just didn't like the idea that we were changing and, and that this was an immutable process. And so I have to confront the fact that things may have gone differently if we'd had those conversations. And I also have to confront the fact that when it came to the point where the hospital then asked me about removing life support, I was the only one to take that decision because he had not, Andy had never engaged enough with his mortality to make end of life plans of any kind to, um, for example, um, give joint power of attorney to somebody else, which I would now urge everyone to do because, sorry, because nobody should have to make that decision on their own ever. Sorry. Um, and um, it's one of those things where you just become very aware that the failure to have those conversations. I mean, Andy didn't have a will. I didn't know where anything was, you know, so it, his estate would have been very complicated anyway, because he was a musician with a 40 year back catalogue. Um, so, you know, it would have been complicated, but it didn't need to be um, 
a major investigation that will have to go on for years to to try and piece things together so there's the practicality but but much more than that there's the emotional side and much more than that there is the possibility of better outcomes if you have these conversations and the decision making yeah absolutely i mean the thing about grief is I don't think there's any way of, of escaping or mitigating grief. Um, you know, people, people mouth that platitude about grief being the price of love, but it is, it's a platitude, but it's also true. And so it's not that you can aim ever to avoid it. If you are lucky enough to love somebody, you will experience it. But um, it is absolutely true that you can try and experience it in a way that is not actually clouded by fear or by um, the unnecessary um, both administrative demands, but, but, but the sort of the, the extraordinary difficulty of trying to piece together what somebody else might have wanted and to honour their wishes without those wishes having been specified. There's also that, because of course, without discussion and, you know, may, maybe some, some of the practical things you've touched on, like a will or end of life plans or power of attorney, um, the, 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 there will still be the question of, if, if, if conversations haven't taken place, there'll still be the question of, well, what would he have wanted? in this situation you know I think we we talk in in our work you know I talk about hospice care and, and sort of end of life care then you know we, we we talk to those who are significant around an individual when the individual is either not able to communicate for themselves or they have never expressed a wish around it or engaged in any conversation about it um, and then it reaches a point where um, it's those around the individual who have to be the decision makers or, or who, of course, you want to be because as professionals, you only get a short time to get to know someone. So actually, it's it's the wife or the partner or the mother or the father who knows the person best, who's key um, to, to making decisions together. They're not just decisions at the end of life, but I think they can come at several stages throughout illness regardless of how long that illness is. One of the things I'm painfully aware of, and the pandemic made it much clearer, is the tendency of people who have not been around people with chronic illness or disability to look at somebody with one of those conditions um, and to assume that they don't consider their life worth living to make assumptions based on it. So for example, my stepfather was ill for the last few years of his life and he was wheelchair bound towards the end of his life and in considerable pain, but he nevertheless, until the very last stage of it, found quality of life and wished to keep living. Um, I have had people say to me since Andy died um, stuff that is just absolutely not true. So the, the condition that he had um, that 
if he died of COVID, as now seems extremely likely, um, would have made him more vulnerable to it was something called sarcoidosis, but his condition was managed and he was able, you know, he'd been on tour doing very um, energetic stage performances, you know, touring is not for the faint hearted. And people said to me, yes, well, he had an underlying condition. What can you expect? And they also said to me things like um, that if he had uh, survived COVID, but had had lived on in some physically diminished way that he wouldn't have wanted that. And I, I think it is absolutely critical that we take the message back to people that that is not true that um, wherever possible you have to let people tell you about the value to their own lives and if they're not capable of doing the, that themselves which Andy certainly wasn't when he was on a ventilator um, you you then have to advocate for them um, but it goes the other way as well so just after Andy died, um, one of, again, a very close friend who had been sort of my mentor as a, as a journalist, uh, she died uh, just, uh, I think, about 10 days after Andy, um, and she was in a hospice, so I hadn't been able to visit her while Andy was dying, but um, I literally went the day after he died, and then I went every day after that, and in her case, she actually couldn't wait to die. She was in considerable pain. There was no way that there was any outcome other than the one that faced her. And she took way too long to die. So it's, it's a really interesting thing because she'd known that she had uh, a cancer that, that was going to kill her. And so she had been able to specify as clearly as it's possible to imagine what she wanted but of course under the current laws what she wanted was also not available to her which is that she wanted an accelerated death and instead you know the hospice did a very good job of of trying to make her comfortable but it was a very cruel process and it's such a complicated set of questions here but um you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of referring obliquely to the idea of assisted dying, for example. Um, assisted dying, to me, having had, in, you know, I, I referred to, the, to my stepsister and my best friend, both of whom died of cancer, and I had another friend who died of a, of a wasting disease. And all of them, at various times, talked about wanting assisted dying but I also have a lot of friends who are disabled for whom the idea of assisted dying is terrifying because they know that this public idea that some lives are, are more important than others or just the very old or not even the very old the old in care homes who were effectively let to die during the pandemic there is reason to fear that if you do not respect people's own sense of what the value to their life is that um, it will go it will go badly wrong and so for me you have to kind of combine 
these two things. If if you think that assisted dying is a good idea, then you also have to campaign to value every single life fully. And that very much includes to value life in, among older people and, and life among the disabled community in ways that we do that we do not as a society do sort out the inequalities in healthcare before you start introducing new laws to be making even bigger decisions you know i think uh, just reading about the inequalities around adults with learning disabilities through the yes. pandemic as, as well well inequalities of all kinds played out in the pandemic you know it's not it is not a coincidence that that the death rate was higher among people in in poorer economic brackets nor that um black and asian communities were harder hit the existing inequalities played out in the death rate and what that's about is is that the vulnerability that is there from already being disadvantaged in some way but potentially it also reflects um, a different response to the need to to save to protect people to save people to value those lives so we have to think about all of that properly and that also involves being able to talk about death because if we can't talk about death and mortality then we also ignore some of the most extreme consequences of inequality if it's okay with you i'd, I'd like to go back and ask um you mentioned andy's memorial yes could you tell us about that yes um so after andy died um one of the things that was immediately obvious to me was that I wanted to celebrate him um not you know I know I know um mourning may have that implication but for me he was such a wonderful person and he had done so much that I wanted to find ways to represent that publicly and so um when it came to planning his funeral, I didn't want to do anything big um, because even though he and I hadn't discussed this, I, I knew what he was like about funerals. Um, he didn't like them. We went to quite a few crematoria together and he really didn't like it. Um, so I, I did this very minimalist, um, tiny little cremation, no frills cremation with only present uh, his brother Martin and um, one of his one of Andy's best friends Emma um, and no ceremony like no words nothing we just went there we saw the coffin we we embraced the coffin and then we left again and I wanted to save the firepower as it were for for a spectacular um, memorial that would truly reflect every facet of who he was and so we uh, hired Conway Hall, which um, fits sort of 440 people or something. And um, I worked with some of Andy's closest friends and one of my sisters, Lisa, to um, put together something that was, it was absolutely a memorial. It wasn't, it wasn't a performance, but it was really thought through to get every angle of who he was because Andy was a public figure, he, he was known. And that to acknowledge that public side of 
who he was was incredibly important but I wanted to show the other sides the the softer sides the funnier sides the human sides as well and and to get the the full scope of his life so um yeah so we put together this event where really um luckily it was just enough before lockdown that that very many of the people who mattered the most in his life were able to be there and to participate and his band um concluded the event by playing there's an amazing song that he wrote that Andy wrote this in 2015 it's called the dying rays and it's absolutely about mortality um and uh you know a lot of the music that he's associated with um is is kind of loud guitar music post-punk um and he in 2015 despite being in some ways so bad about acknowledging mortality um somehow wrote this this very beautiful lyrical piece that was so clearly about death and they played this piece at the end of the memorial with a, a montage of photographs uh playing behind them and heartbreakingly for me Andy's guitar on its stand on the stage the um I've got the I've got the lyrics here I'll just read a little bit of it. Stop the seconds flow. Oh, I'm too late. I'm back where I began at the start. I'm caught in the wake. I'll have my due and drag the rock up the hill. Nothing to lose that's not been lost. I wish the sun anchored still. What I wanted disappears in the haze. A speck of dust held forever in the dying rays. Breath. Sorry breath on the mirror, nothing inside, the horizon's bare, but in the night I miss the pilot's light, control of power, empires were built in our minds, but it will all go up in a blaze, only dust in the dying rays. It's a very beautiful song and uh, they played it, but uh, they had re-recorded it very fast just after he died and we released it as a single on the day that he was cremated, which was Valentine's Day, in order to raise money for the NHS and St. Thomas's Hospital where he died. So um, I was very glad to be able to do that, uh, you know, right in the, in the teeth of the pandemic to do something to, to support because that team in the hospital were incredible. Thank you for reading those lyrics and sharing that. And, you know, I was just incredibly moved by that image of um, the guitar at the last song in Conway Hall. Um, yeah, sounds beautiful, Catherine. Oh, it was. It was, I, there was a funny bit afterwards as well, which is the, um, after the the big thing uh, a smaller group of like his really closest friends and family went to a, a little pub near where we live and we we took over the whole pub and um 
the uh, I mentioned his friend Emma and an, another friend Tessa. They're, they're artists and mosaicists, and they made a new pub sign for the pub, and they called it the Andy Gill Arms, <laughs> and uh, and managed to completely rename the pub. Fantastic! It rained that night, so the the thing got a bit wet, but I managed to salvage it, and I've actually had it framed and hung in Andy's studio. Uh, so so I have this giant pub sign at home now. And Andy did love a good pub. He really did. <laughs> That's great. The coronavirus pandemic has triggered a wave of bereavement across the country and taken away our ability to be with loved ones and grieve in traditional ways. Marie Curie's new Memory Cloud is an online space to reflect on a loved one's life and share special memories with your friends and family visit memorycloud.org.uk. If we're talking here with you, I'd like to, um, to hear about your experience of grief. And certainly with Andy's death, I know that's, you know, you, you, you were grieving for your stepfather as well. And it sounds like there's been other significant losses in your life. Um, and, and, and could you maybe also tell us about some of the things that have helped you or help through grief and some of the things that certainly don't help. Yes, as I said, I think Andy and I both had lost more people than were usual by our sort of age bracket in this country. I mean, obviously that that changes a lot depending on where you live and what's going on, but um, I've lost significantly more than 20 people close to me already which is I think quite a lot for for my age um and um and yet I'm lucky enough to have both the both of my parents are still alive I lost my stepfather but but I have um a mother who's alive at 87 a father who's alive at 92 and also a stepmother so I'm I'm very lucky in that sense but um so I was I thought I knew grief before Andy died. Um, and what I knew about grief was that grief is very confusing, that you think you're doing very well when you're not. Um, that I, I already knew that the idea of stages, of defined stages of grief was a total misapprehension. And the idea that you should hurry through grief, which a lot of people believe that you should sort of like progress from one stage to another like it's some kind of obstacle course and that the objective should be to rid yourself of grief that that is absolutely wrong and that what you what you really want to be doing is embracing your grief and making it livable because then it makes it possible for the lovely dead to be part of your life without flinching um, so I already knew that and I already knew that the way that grief affected me in particular, and this is not the same for everyone, but I knew that I quite often felt in the aftermath of a death and for quite a long time afterwards, I would feel like I could do without sleeping or eating. Like uh, I would feel incredibly light insubstantial as if I almost had no body and and that I could almost do anything I would be hyper functional as opposed to uh, unable to do things 
I would organize a lot of things. I would organize funerals. I would, you know, I, I will just go into hyperdrive. And it's only later that I realized several things. One is that I tend to have very fractured memories from those periods. And it's particularly bad with Andy, where I have really severe bits of amnesia where I can't remember, you know, like I absolutely have no memory of leaving the hospital after he died and getting home. Nothing like that. Um, I had to ask people how I got home. Um, my surviving best friend, Nikki, took me home, but I had no memory of it. Um, and I, I would get bruises um, because my spatial awareness was shot. So I only recently started driving again because I was scared to, to drive um, because, and I'm still very nervous about it, because I, it means for some reason uh, that death affects my compass. And so, so these were, for me, these are, these are tricky things about grief that it's useful to know. So I knew that I had to make myself eat, that I wouldn't eat unless I absolutely made myself do it. I know that I walk very long distances and that my impulse is to walk in the middle of the night, which isn't the safest thing in the world. Um, and so I, I just tried very hard to make sure that I ate, that I went to bed even if I didn't sleep but in terms of the help that other people gave that was extraordinary and it continues to be extraordinary what I appreciated most you know I, I, I started this conversation by slightly ranting at you about the question how are you because particularly if delivered with the head on one side and a sort of meaningful voice it's a question I don't like I didn't want people catechizing me about what I was feeling but I, I wanted company and company was very quickly denied by lockdown but people still found ways you know whether it was via zoom or whatever to to try to give me some kind of companionship and also to make sure that there were things, practical things like food. I mean, it's not hard, only hard to eat, it's hard to think about the practicalities of how you get to the point of eating. And so people would do things like deliver ready-made meals or, um, you know, I, I have a friend, Jo, who throughout this has, she makes her own breakfast cereal, which is a, a granola that's so good, she calls it Cracola. And she's been sending me boxes of Cracola. Um, you know, and, and things like that are are lovely. Um, but but I think my main takeaway from all of it was people sometimes said really awkward and, and unintentionally hilarious things. Um, people are not comfortable with talking to the bereaved at all. And it means that they stumble into all sorts. But there was nothing that anybody said to me that hurt me. The only thing that hurt me was people who were themselves so frightened to talk to me that they didn't even try. Um, that 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 I was ghosted by a few people because they they just couldn't cope. Um, and 
there were also some people who tried to take advantage um you know i mean including fraudsters and 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 people who assume that at this point in time when you're recently bereaved that you will be uh, an easy mark as it were um so those things hurt but nothing else hurts so what i would say to anybody wondering how to support the bereaved is practical support is best and that practical support also involves thinking what people may need because they won't necessarily be in a position to tell you or to know what they need um don't worry about saying the wrong thing say something maybe use methods of communication that are not intrusive so phone calls are not necessarily the best thing because you know you don't know what state you're going to catch somebody in so sometimes it's better to use other kinds of messaging just to make sure that somebody actually wants to talk um but reach out do reach out you know don't don't be scared and then i mean something something i found for myself i mentioned about wanting to celebrate andy i had a very strong sense of purpose that emerged quite early on about things that i felt needed to be done in terms of ensuring his legacy and also things that needed to be done that were not related to him but where i felt that if death teaches you anything it's about using your time well so just as an example um when lockdown first started right at the beginning of that i realized that there were people who were shielding and people who were having to self isolate who had no way to shop or get food or medicine and so because i have quite a large social media following i realized that i could try and connect people on via social media who needed help so i sort of set up a a very ad hoc initiative to connect people who needed help with those who could help because i could do it and it and it seemed like a like a good use of time you've mentioned the lovely dead a few times can you talk a bit more about what that means well the lovely dead are a huge presence in my life um and i mean it was uh just a few days ago it was the birthday of of my friend Paula who died way too young and um Joe who i mentioned before she and i were both very close to Paula and so both of us did things that celebrated Paula and that Paula celebrated her in the sense of her still being this very significant presence in our lives so it's the people who are gone you know they're not there in ways that you want them to be you know uh, but but they are still hugely significant and you can do things to to mark that so i'm cool for for some reason like those those chocolates the violet cream so joe had bought a big box of violet creams and she saved some for me so that we can eat them together when when lockdown's over um you know because it's such a cooler thing and um my uh, lovely friend sarah who 
died a few years ago, you know, who's one of my very best friends. Um, I have this very flamboyant hat that she used to wear and it's sitting actually on a lampstand upstairs uh, where I also have a lot of pictures of Andy now. And so it's very often in my line of vision and it, it pleases me that it's there. I like, you know, uh, I'm not doing a very good job of sounding cheerful right now, but actually it does cheer me up. You know, I remember nice and funny things and I have conversations with the lovely dead, which I realize sounds uh, a little bit unhinged, but it really isn't. Uh, so yeah, I mean, they are part of the texture of life. And the reason I'm crying now is because we talked about Andy's death. And once I talk about Andy's death, it takes me back to a point where I keep crying. But most days I go through without crying. Um, well, that's probably a lie. But I'm, I, most days I can engage with with Andy and the other lovely dead without crying and indeed often with laughing and with pleasure and with joy. I think it's so important for people, you know, who, who'd be listening um, to hear that message that there aren't just six steps to grief or five steps, um, you know, that, that, that happen over the space of a couple of months. And, um, you know, they, they, they sort of talk in, bereavement world about continuing bonds i think that's you know and that and the lovely dead that you talk to us about and i think they're really really important messages for people to hear i don't think i've uh, you know that those stages of grief that people expect i don't think at any point i have been uh in denial ever and I don't also think that uh, I've been angry. I mean, I, I, I tell Andy off all the time about, um, like, you know, uh, having not sorted out a will. And also because when he died, there was this amazing album that he was working on that hadn't been finished, but it was kind of at a very significant stage. And I knew as soon as he died that I had to finish and get that album out. But I also knew that I had spent the whole time we were together resisting getting embroiled in the music industry because it's such a stupid industry. And um, I mean, I love the people I'm working with. I love, you know, the, the final lineup of Andy's band um, are also like really, really close friends. You know, I love those people. Um, I'm lucky enough also that Andy had a great friend Santi who is a sound engineer and mixer and um, I've been able to reopen Andy's studio uh, with Santi so you know I love those people but the industry itself is a terrible industry Andy was always trying to get me embroiled in his working life and I did do a lot of stuff you know I'd sometimes get involved in songwriting in, in lyric writing and I'd certainly was a sounding board but I had managed to avoid the sort of business end of it. And I'm now working absolutely, well, I was going to say working full-time in the music industry. And the thing is I'm doing several things that you would think of being full-time, but we're getting, this album is called The, the Problem of Leisure. And it was going to 
be um, just a sort of celebration of Andy's band Gang of Four, but it's now called a celebration of Andy Gill and Gang of Four. And it's world famous musicians, many of them uh, covering the songs that he's written. Um, and uh, it's it's a huge project. Um, you know, um, it's coming out in, in June and um, Damien Hurst has done the album artwork and as I say, these kind of like huge musicians doing it, but it's a huge amount of work as well. Yeah. So yeah, I'm swearing at Andy most days about that, but it's not, it's not anger like the idea of the stages of grief anger. It's, um, it's kind of just anger at the stupid music industry. Uh, <laughs> but that's also been very lucky for me to have, you know, I talked about having a sense of purpose and I mean, I was already a political activist. I'm the co-founder of the political party, the Women's Equality Party. So I've always had that sense of urgency about making things better. And, and that somehow, for me, bereavement ties into that, as I say, that sense of using the time you have well. That doesn't just mean using the time you have, by the way, for... Um, doing good for other people it also means living well yourself very much means living well yourself um but uh i also um you know i i ended up writing a book about about grief um with my mother and that was um a really interesting thing because i didn't mean to write that book and i didn't really want to um my mother responded to her bereavement and then being locked down by starting to write letters to my dead stepfather to tell him about all the extraordinary things that were happening in the world and these letters are amazing they're kind of a an amazing outpouring of love but they are also a document about the very strange year that all of us have had more than a year and so um, when my publisher, because I am a, a book author as well, so when my publisher came to me and having seen a blog post that I'd written about Andy's death and she came to me and said, would I write a book about his death? And I said, no, you know, it's way too early for me, but look at these amazing letters my mother's written, you should publish these. And my publisher came back and said, actually, I'd love to publish these, but you need to write the book that goes around them. And my initial thought was, well, I sort of have to do this because it's hard enough thinking about how to rebuild my my own life at my age um, when, in theory, you know, and touch wood, I have quite a few decades left. But my mother at 87, this is such a such a difficult idea. How do you how do you rebuild? And so. I realized I was able to open a kind of new vista to her. So she's a first time published author at 87 and it gave her a kind of drive and purpose. And she's now working on the second book, but we together, my mother and I as new widows also discovered that we had a lot we wanted to say about grief and about dealing with grief and about acknowledging mortality. Some of the stuff that you and I have been talking about because we also realized how ill-prepared most people are for it. And, and we felt it was a conversation that isn't had enough. You know, death is medicalized, it's shoved behind screens, it's, it's ignored, and it gives it 
more disruptive power than it deserves to have. Um, so we wanted to address that. And the book is called Good Grief. Um, and the subtitle is Embracing Life at a Time of Death. And I think that tells you where we're coming from on it, you know, that that grief, grief is not something you want to get rid of. It is it is an expression of love. And we still love the husbands we lost. And we want everyone to know that and to understand that death does not end love and that grief is not something to expel. Just before we finish, we come near to the end. You've given up lots of time, which uh, which we're very grateful for. Can I can I just ask what, what what it's meant, Catherine, to come on this podcast today? Well, as you heard from my long answers, I feel very passionately um, that it is absolutely critical that we as a society do better at having these conversations. You know, one of the things I've campaigned for um, is, well, I've, I've campaigned for a lot of things around education to make the world better, ways to make the world more gender equal, you know, in addressing all the kind of inequities in the education system and, and the messaging. But I think that one of the missing components of education is an acknowledgement from a very early age of mortality, um, but not in a way that frightens, you know, not in a way that that scares, but at, but death is part of life. And um, I think it is something that people can get through a very large part of their life before discovering that, but it means that the discovery is more painful and disruptive than it needs to be. It means that things like discussing end of life wishes is something that a lot of people never get round to. Making wills is something that a lot of people don't get round to. Whereas if it was, you know, if it was something that we could discuss without fear, and, and I'm not suggesting that you can ever take away all fear of death, but you can certainly, if you've ever sort of been around people who are dying, most of the time that experience is one that is actually strangely reassuring and grief and and the understanding of the lovely dead is strangely reassuring so i'm glad to to be part of this podcast in order to to try and get this this conversation more widely spread it, you know however i can can do that and um also because of anything that i say leads people to understand individual grief to understand that that andy is like you know to, to look up who andy was to find out how wonderful he was it also helps counteract something that's been going on during the pandemic which is as the numbers of dead ticked up very fast we're now at a at 150,000 acknowledged COVID dead. The sense of the wider world about what those individual deaths meant um, became blurred because the human brain can't cope with that scale of death. And what it does is it, it, it just stops understanding each death as an individual 
tragedy that affects this whole universe of people around that dead person. And so I want to insist on the individual humanity of each of the people who died in the pandemic, whether of COVID or any other reason, and to help people understand that we are a society that is particularly marinated in grief at the moment and that there needs to be a kind of public acknowledgement and reckoning with that uh, in good ways that we can take it and learn from it and and learn about learn about mortality and grief in good ways. Well Catherine Mayer thank you for joining me on the Marie Curie couch today thank you for sharing some of Andy Gill's continuing story and the lovely dead and after this I'm going to go and listen to the dying rays good thank you thanks so much so that's all for this episode of on the Marie Curie couch we hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family Marie Curie's here to help from planning ahead to coping with bereavement. You can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. And the music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>